Chapter Three of Molly Make Believe by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For quite a long time, Stanton lay and considered the matter judiciously from every possible point of view. It would have been rather pleasant, he mused, to know who we were. Almost childishly, his face cuddled into the pillow. She might at least have told me the name of the ostrich. He smiled grimly, thus quite utterly denied any nourishing Cornelia-flavoured food for his thoughts. His hungry mind reverted very naturally to the tantalising, evasive, sweetly spicy fragrance of the Molly episode, before the really dreadful photograph of the unhappy spinster lady had burst upon his blinking vision. Scowlingly, he picked up the picture and stared and stared at it. Certainly it was grim. But even from its grimness emanated the same faint, mysterious odour of cinnamon roses that lurked in the accompanying letter. There's some dreadful mistake somewhere, he insisted. Then suddenly he began to laugh, and reaching out once more for pen and paper, inscribed his second letter and his first complaint to the Serial Letter Company. To the Serial Letter Company he wrote sternly, with many ferocious tremors of dignity and rheumatism. Kindly allow me to call attention to the fact that in my recent order of the 18th instant the specifications distinctly stated love letters, and not any correspondence whatsoever, no matter how exhilarating from either a grey plush squirrel or a band of sea pirate, as evidenced by enclosed photograph which I am hereby returning. Please refund money at once, or forward me without delay a consistent photograph of a special edition deluxe girl. Very truly yours. The letter was mailed by the janitor long before noon. Even as late as eleven o'clock that night Stanton was still hopefully expecting an answer. Nor was he altogether disappointed. Just before midnight a messenger boy appeared with a fair-sized manila envelope, quite stiff and important-looking. Oh, please, sir, said the enclosed letter. Oh, please, sir, we cannot refund your subscription money because we have spent it. But if you will only be patient, we feel quite certain that you will be altogether satisfied in the long run with the material offered you. As for the photograph recently forwarded to you, kindly accept our apologies for a very clumsy mistake made here in the office. Do any of these other types suit you better? Kindly mark selection and return all pictures at your earliest convenience. Before the messenger boy's astonished interest, Stanton spread out on the bed all around him a dozen soft, sepia-coloured photographs of a dozen different girls. Stately in satin, or simple in gingham, or deliciously hoydenish in fishing clothes. They challenged his surprised attention. Blonde, brunette. Tall, short, posing with wistful tenderness in the flickering glow of an open fire, or smiling frankly out of a purely conventional vignette. They one and all defied him to choose between them. Oh, oh, laughed Stanton to himself. Am I to try and separate her picture from eleven pictures of her friends? So that's the game, is it? Well, I guess not. Does she think I'm going to risk choosing a tomboy girl if the gentle little creature with the pansies is really herself? Or suppose she truly is the enchanting little tomboy 
Would she probably write me any more nice funny letters if I solemnly selected her sentimental, moony-looking friend at the heavily draped window? Craftily he returned all the pictures unmarked to the envelope, and changing the address, hurried the messenger boy off to remail it. Just this little note hastily scribbled in pencil went with the envelope. Dear Serial Letter Company, the pictures are not altogether satisfactory. It is not a type that I am looking for, but a definite likeness of Molly herself. Kindly rectify the mistake without further delay, or refund the money. Almost all the rest of the night he amused himself, chuckling to think how the terrible threat about refunding the money would confuse and conquer the extravagant little art student. But it was his own hands that did the nervous trembling when he opened the big express package that arrived the next evening, just as his tiresome porridge supper was finished. "'Ah, sweetheart,' said the dainty note tucked inside the package. "'Ah, sweetheart, the little god of love be praised for one true lover, yourself. So it is a picture of me that you want, the real me, the truly me. No mere pink and white likeness, no actual proof even of seared and yellow age, no curly-haired coquettish attractiveness that the shampoo lady and the photograph man trapped me into for that one single second.' no deceptive profile of the best side of my face, and I, perhaps, blind in the other eye, not even a fair, honest, everyday portrait of my father's and mother's composite features, but a picture of myself. Hooray for you! A picture, then, not of my physiognomy, but of my personality. Very well, sir. Here is the portrait, true to the life, in this great clumsy conglomerate package of articles that represent, perhaps, not even so much the prosy little things that I am as the much more illuminating and significant things that I would like to be. It's what we would like to be that really tells most about us, isn't it, Carl Stanton? The brown that I have to wear talks loudly enough, for instance, about the colour of my complexion. But the forbidden pink that I most crave whispers infinitely more intimately concerning the colour of my spirit. And as to my face, am I really obliged to have a face? Oh, no. Songs without words are surely the only songs in the world that are packed to the last little note with utterly limitless meanings. So in these letters without faces, I cast myself quite serenely upon the mercy of your imagination. What's that, you say, that I've simply got to have a face? Oh, darn! Well, do your worst. Conjure up for me, then. Here and now, any sort of features whatsoever that please your fancy. Only man of mine, just remember this in your imaginings. Gift me with beauty, if you like, or gift me with brains. But do not make the crude masculine mistake of gifting me with both. Thought foes faces, you know, and after adolescence only inanity retains its heavenly smoothness. Beauty, even at its worst, is a gorgeously perfect, flower-sprinkled lawn over which the most ordinary everyday errands of life cannot cross without scarring, and brains at their best are only a ploughed field, teeming always and forever with the worries of incalculable harvests. Make me a little pretty, if you like, and a little wise, but not too much of either, if you value the verities of your vision. There, I say, 
do your worst. Make me that face, and that face only, that you need the most in all this big, lonesome world. Food for your heart, or fragrances for your nostrils. Only one face or another. I insist upon having red hair. Molly. With his lower lip twisted oddly under the bite of his strong white teeth, Stanton began to unwrap the various packages that comprised the large bundle. If it was a portrait, it certainly represented a puzzle picture. First there was a small, flat-footed, scarlet slipper with a fluffy gold toe to it. Definitely feminine. Definitely small. So much for that. Then there was a slingshot, ferociously stubby and rather confusingly boyish. After that, round and flat and tantalising as an empty plate, the phonograph disc of a totally unfamiliar song, The Seagull's Cry, a clue surely to neither age nor sex, but indicative, possibly, of music preference or mere individual temperament. After that, a tiny geographical globe, with Kipling's phrase, For to admire and for to see, for to be old this world so wide. It never done no good to me, but I can't drop it if I tried. Written slantingly in very black ink across both hemispheres. Then an empty purse with a hole in it. A silver embroidered gauntlet such as horsemen wear on the Mexican frontier. A white table doily, partly embroidered with silk blue forget-me-nots. The threaded needle still jabbed in the work and the small thimble Stanton could have sworn, still warm from the snuggle of somebody's finger. Last of all, a fat and formidable edition of Robert Browning's poems, a tiny black domino mask such as masqueraders wear, and a shimmering gilt picture frame enclosing a pert yet not irrelevant handmade adaption of a certain portion of St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, and have not a sense of humour, I am becoming a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and all knowledge, so that I could remove mountains and have not a sense of humour, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my gods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not a sense of humour, it profiteth me nothing. A sense of humour suffereth long and is kind, a sense of humour envieth not, a sense of humour vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. A sense of humour never faileth, but whether it be unpleasant prophecies they shall fail, whether there be scolding tongues they shall cease, whether there be unfortunate knowledge it shall vanish away. When I was a fault-finding child I spake as a fault-finding child, I understood as a fault-finding child, but when I became a woman I put away fault-finding things, and now abideth faith, hope, charity, and these three, but the greatest of these is a sense of humour.
With a little chuckle of amusement not altogether devoid of a very definite consciousness of being teased, Stanton spread all the articles out on the bedspread before him and tried to piece them together like the fragments of any other jigsaw puzzle. Was the young lady as intellectual as the Robert Browning poem suggested? Or did she mean simply to imply that she wished she were? And did the tomboyish slingshot fit by any possible chance with the dainty feminine scrap of domestic embroidery? And was the empty purse supposed to be especially significant of an inordinate fondness for phonograph music? Or what? Pondering, puzzling, fretting, fussing, he dozed off to sleep at last before he even knew that it was almost morning. And when he finally woke again, he found the doctor laughing at him because he lay holding a scarlet slipper in his hand. End of chapter 3